When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade. And as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But the words of wisdom and the solid advice come from the other Jeff in this radio program. It would be Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how are you doing this holiday weekend? I'm doing great. It is kind of a festive time of year, isn't it? You know, oh, we yeah. uh, think about our many blessings and share and that's give. Right. And, you know, it's really uh, more joyful to give and to serve than it is to get. I know that's a kind of a little kid thing where you love getting stuff on Christmas, but it's also yeah. a nice time to reflect on your many blessings and to uh, share and make other people's lives better if we can. Yeah. And I think that's something that should not go unnoticed is, is that it is the time of giving. If you've got more than you need, help somebody who doesn't have as much as you have. I enjoy the giving part as much as I do the receiving. Actually, I enjoy the giving part a lot more. I send out gifts to people and I like to help a family at Christmas time, really all year round and to see their faces light up, you know, when they thought they weren't going to have a great Christmas. But here we come with a turkey and all the fixings and some presents for the children. We've had a family here locally in my particular neighborhood who unfortunately lost a home due to a fire. So, I mean, I looked around and boy, we had so many unused clothing and things that we didn't need. We practically, along with with myself and my family members and our church have really set these people up and it really did good for the human soul. So think about that this year. It is the season of giving and don't forget what Christmas is really all about. Okay, Jeff, let's dive into the important stuff here. Not that Christmas isn't important. Actually, I think it is more important, the meaning of Christmas and what we're going to talk about. But nevertheless, this is a financial show. So let's talk about what's going on out there, what the opinions and the prognosticators are saying. I'm seeing some prognosticators talk about what they think the S&P 500 is going to be in the coming year and what things are going to be all about. And I'm seeing some people, they're very optimistic. What is your feeling? What is your prognostication? I don't know that you have a crystal ball, but what are your clients telling you about how they feel about the environment that they're in right now and in the coming year. You know, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at history, when everybody's on the same page, it's always right around an inflection point. It's usually the opposite of what everybody's page that they're on. So when everybody's starting to get on this, oh, the economy's better, the economy's better. You know, we had three straight quarters that overall we had earnings losses. Last quarter, we finally saw kind of an uptick. We saw some stabilization in the uh, inflation rate, which isn't really great. The uh, GDP actually grew. A lot of that was uh, travel, hospitality, and things like that. But we've still got a lot of consumer goods and staple type things that people can't afford, like Spotify laying off huge amounts of their workforce. We just found out Hasbro, this uh, the toy yeah. company around Christmas is laying off 20% of their workforce, over a thousand people out of their 6,000. So, I mean, it can't be that, you know, that the economy is great. If you look at the S&P, we still only have seven 
companies driving the entire gains. And those are all the Magnificent Seven. These are all speculative companies like NVIDIA, you know, Apple, Google, Microsoft. Now, some of those are a little bit more staples, you know, when we think about the uh, tech industry. But to drive the prices up to exorbitant levels, in- including the fact that based on the AI hype, which has turned everybody into speculators on these anything AI, and especially these uh, Magnificent Seven, people are, you know, buying with just careless abandon, not looking at fundamentals, just looking at, oh, there's going to be a big AI craze and there's going to be some future sales. And, you know, when I kind of crunch the numbers a little bit, I, it looks to me like NVIDIA is already uh, priced at where they're going to own every AI chip for the next five years. Well, they're not. You know, there's seven or eight other companies, including most of these in the Magnificent Seven. They're all going to start building their own chips. You know, Tesla, Apple, you know, Intel's coming on strong. Uh, there's a lot of people going to take their market share. There's uh, the president of NVIDIA. I'm just using NVIDIA because it's one of those uh, stars of the year from the standpoint of uh, growth rates. But, you know, they had a, a huge, you know, a lot of pre-sales and a lot of uh, sales last quarter. And it looked like, oh my gosh, they beat the estimates. But the CEO says, well, let's be cautious here. You know, uh, China's going to ban us from their company and other companies are coming in to be competitors. Uh, you know, be careful and let's not get way ahead of ourselves. That was the CEO of the company, which typically, you know, because he's a major stockholder, I'm sure how many shares he owns, but CEOs of companies are, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a warning sign that uh, wouldn't come if, you know, he was trying to uh, prop the market up. I think he's trying to give fair warning that, hey, look, this is a little bit overdone. And that's just one. I mean, there's a lot of these big companies are, I think, overdone. We're looking at still six different indicators, like the economic indicators are uh, still on a, a downtrend. They look like they might be stabilizing. We look at, you know, the market's already pricing in two rate cuts over the next six or eight months. The Fed didn't say that. The Fed said, if things start stabilizing, we may see a pause, but they are still very anxious in everything that they've said recently to raise them if inflation rate doesn't hit their target of two. And that might be some increases even next year. Now, I tend to believe that there may not be. I think there's a couple of things that will uh, weigh heavily on any potential increases. I think that's what the market's doing is betting that somehow a couple of ticks down is going to fix the price of cash and the price of borrowing for all these companies that are still kind of struggling to make gains. I think there's kind of a last push typically right before a recession or a depression uh, where people, you know, feel like they're okay. And, you know, they, we keep getting told that we're not going to go into one. And, and you know what? They might be right. But I'd rather err on the side of caution when there's so many things, economic cycles, like the interest rate inversion. We've got the uh, fact that uh, private owners own more stock than institutions. Well, why are the institutions cheerleading if they're, if they're not buying more stock than private uh, stockholders, the private you know, residents, you know, people like you and me who, well, I'm a little bit more in tune with the market because I study it every day than, than most people. Most people are just buying based on the fact that they hear something on TV. There's been $250 billion in cash raised this year, in spite of the fact that the market's going up and, you know, setting annual growth records and monthly growth records recently. But remember, that's in the face of a really bad year last year and a cycle that typically has a bear market rally before its cycle finally ends. So we've got private investors owning far more equity than institutions. That's kind of an anomaly that doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it's right before a crash. We have the yield curve inversion, which means the short-term interest rates are actually better than long-term interest rates. When it uninverts or when it rallies, uh, when the um, short-term rates fall quickly, like they just have in the last month, the recessions of history, which have always came about, have typically happened within just a a few months of, of that time happening. So we could be on the brink. We also have all these cycles that end in recession typically take about two years to manifest themselves. We're in about 18 months, not two years from the time the market starts going down because the sell-off happened before the yield curve inverted. The sell-off started happening before economic indicators, housing starts, other things started lagging. It took about six months. So about June, July of a year and a half ago is when these cycles kind of started materializing. Now, the last couple of times we've had a cycle like COVID 
it was like, you know, 30 days down and four months to get back to even. It was pretty dang quick. And then um, the time before that, we remember, that was about a, you know, about a 14 to, it was about a, roughly an 18 month downturn in, in 2008 when we had that, you know, bank crisis and all that stuff, credit crisis. And uh, we kind of fixed that with a bunch of stimulus money. But the market still took five years after that to even get close to back even to actually break through and stay higher. So um, these cycles do tend to be kind of mean right at the end. They also kind of catch everybody by surprise. The last time in 2008, when we had a pretty severe recession, some might people have felt it was a depression because they lost their homes and maybe all their properties and maybe many filed bankruptcy. It was a pretty harsh time. But right before that, the worst prognosticator was calling for a soft landing. The Fed was saying, oh, we might not even have a recession. We're going to have a soft landing. Huh? Does it sound like anything we're hearing today? Yeah, absolutely. We also have to remember who's the people that are prognosticating, as you say, this rate hike. It's people that benefit by you buying stocks so it can prop their own investor portfolio up. They are not an uninterested third party. They are a player that benefits by you buying stock. And a lot of it is benefiting. And as we've seen, the institutions have unloaded a lot of their stock, about 10% swing is what has happened. So out of the trillions and trillions of dollars out there, institutions have unloaded 10% of their holdings and the private investor has increased it by 10. So there's almost a 20% gap within the last few weeks when I checked. There is about a 20% gap, 15 to 20, let's just say, gap between private ownership and uh, institutional. When the economy's good and when markets are good and when there's fundamentals backing everything, historically, the institutions are closer to 60%. Private ownership is closer to 40 to 50 and somewhere between 50 and 60 on the institutional side. And it's typically by a pretty good margin the other way. So we're totally backwards in that case. We also have all the uh, excess cash stimulus money. It's just recently dried up. So there's not a lot of extra stuff going into available for just extra buying. I think people are getting uh, kind of a feeding frenzy. A lot of that money that was sitting in cash on the sidelines for the typical private investor, not the institutional investor, that's where the cash has come off the sidelines and gone back into the market because people have a fear of missing out. Oh, it looks good. Everybody's saying it looks good. Everybody who? Well, the Fed doesn't really want to you know, scare you into selling everything. The government doesn't. Wall Street companies certainly don't, especially when they're selling to you at a higher price. They want this thing to last a little longer. But guess what? They're going to swoop and buy with all their cash. At $250 billion, two-thirds of that's Warren Buffett, and the other two-thirds is just other investors. And you know, I think if you look at what the market makers, actual institutional investors, they've raised some cash too, if you think, if you look at it, because they're holding less and less stocks and the private sector is holding more and more. Another thing that just came out is, uh, you know, the labor market. Oh, we, we still have unemployment, but there's less jobs available. That means companies aren't hiring like they used to. So those are things that happen right before recessions. All of the indicators to me are the fundamentals say we're still going to have one. I could be wrong, but I'd rather be wrong on the side of caution and be making 5% on short-term bonds meantime while we're waiting for this, what I think is at least maybe four out of five odds we're going to have a, a downturn or some kind of a downturn before we have an upturn. I do think near the end of the year, we're going to have an upturn regardless of what we have between now and the middle of next year. But between now and the middle of next year is when, if we have a recession, it will likely be manifest. I don't want to be in the market when a recession is likely manifest based on historical graphs and charts and fundamentals and things that I look at. Just because a guru said at the beginning of this year, because he was trying to cheerlead the market, said, the market's going to go up. Look at AI. The market's going to go up. And everybody got in the bandwagon. The market went up. Now, all of a sudden, they're the guru. And so, you know, they're getting touted and they're the ones out on the front line of news that says, oh, the same guy that predicted the market was going to be up 18% this year is predicting the market's going to be up another 24 and end at 6,000 next year. Okay, well, that's 
some people, but you've got the Ray Dalios and the, the Maldens and the Druckenmillers who, you know, may see some swings in some stocks, but they still see recession coming. This is smart money. You see Warren Buffett, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway raising cash. They see something. They might not see a recession or a crash coming as much as they see a better buying opportunity. Let's just put it that way. Whether it's a little bit down or a lot down, typically the market stays kind of flat to down in the beginning of an election year. And it typically rises in the end of that election year when we kind of know who the candidates are going to be. And then after the election, regardless of who wins, history shows the following years is typically a decent year. So I'd rather play the odds and be in the market end of next year and the following year and you know see how it goes thereafter than try to be in it right now when we have so many things that are pointing to uh, you know ugly. We have price earnings ratios, just outrageous rates. Yet some of these people that say the market's going to go up are using future price earnings rates based on hypothetical returns and you know lowering of interest rates and things that they can't even tell is going to happen and speculating that the PE ratio next year is really only going to be 20, not 30 like it is today. Well, that can only happen if they earn a lot more money than they're earning or if last year's kind of surprise quarter of you know less earnings disappointments than prior. Now, of course, I've told you this before. Most earnings are speculative in nature. They kind of go out with, this is what we expect, and then they get revised down so that they have a really good chance of beating the estimates when they have to report earnings, which is kind of one of those things that manipulates the market, for lack of a better term. Now, when the economy is healthy, when prices are normal, when GDP is growing faster than out-of-control price earnings ratios on the stock market, when uh, institutions, the smart money, owns more stock than the public, and when the inversion curve says long-term yields are higher than short-term yields is where it logically should be. And when the economic indicators, which is a bunch of indicators like housing starts, housing finishes, different growth points in the economy, when that list of economic indicators turns positive, then that's typically when we've either gone into a recession or about to or coming out. So it's usually we're on the downtrend. We've got so many things showing that we haven't quite finished. I just want to want to be careful. So I'm not going to buy into the hype just because somebody guessed it right last year or this year because, you know, the AI hype, which was all speculative. If a speculator's right, that's great if you're a speculator. I'm not a speculator. I'm, a, I'm an asset protector. You've worked hard to get to retirement or you're getting close to retirement. This is your life's work. I'm not going to put it out there on the table to get it taken from you in the next surprise economic downturn. Let's let's protect it. And when the economy gets better, when all the aspects that drive an economy upwards are in sync, then we're going back in the market. I mean, there's no sense in not making money when the market's good. There's also not a lot of sense in risking your money when the market may look good on speculation, but not good on fundamentals. So that's pretty much my story. How's that for a first answer? I love that. I've been saying Sitting here on the edge of my seat, just listening to what you've got to say. We're talking with Jeff Ogan here about whether or not a recession may be coming in 2024. Stock market, job market, they're flashing some warning signs, so it remains to be seen. If you'd like to get in and sit down with Jeff and talk about your individual situation and how whether or not a recession might affect your retirement plans, again, we're offering a no-cost, no-obligation retirement review. You can get yours by calling 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation for this. Just a chance for you to sit down with Jeff. Sort of a community service to ask your particular questions and get the answers that you need to make an intelligent decision about your path towards retirement. Again, it's not going to cost you anything. There is no obligation whatsoever. We're not going to try to sell you something in this initial meeting. Actually, we're never going to try to sell you something. We may suggest things for you, but we won't do that until at least the second meeting. The first meeting is strictly informational, a chance for you to get your questions answered. So why wouldn't you give that number a call today while you've still got a chance here before the end of the year? 520 
520-780-9059 is that number to call. 520-780-9059. Leave your information. Shelly will give you a call back on Monday and get you in for an appointment with Jeff. You can also request your plan online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Yeah, you know, one follow-up to that. I, I read a really interesting quote this week just on the recession situation. And, you know, I use the term like, you know, I think it might be closer to 7 or 80%. That's what the Fed actually said. We have a chance of recession. Now, when they call for recession, that's usually a bad thing because they typically don't. They typically say, oh, soft landing, or we might have it. Well, they've backed off the fact that we might have a recession. This is just based on an article just this week that uh, the Fed, the New York Fed, has lowered its 12-month recession prediction. That means within the next 12 months. I don't think it's going to happen 12 months away. I think if it's going to happen within the next 12 months, it's going to happen probably within the next two quarters, probably maximum. If not, I think if next summer we haven't had one, I think we may have somehow got out of it. But here's an interesting quote by a market strategist that is kind of looking at the whole picture, kind of like I do, kind of looking at the whole picture, not just guessing and swinging for the fence. He says, to think that after a 13-year bull market, we will not see a normal cyclical bear market recession is to believe that the business cycle has somehow been miraculously repealed after 400 years of historic stock market cyclical data. This is a 400-year cycle that I'm talking about. And there's six different things that end in recession happening at the same time, not just one or two. It's not just a market sell-off and not much just a market correction cycle. This is underscored by several different recessionary influences and forces that you know we haven't seen come together in probably a century, let alone you know in the last decade. So again, it assumes that somehow the business cycle that's held true to fact for 400 years, somehow this time will be different. He said, it never is. And that's, that's the thing. And so, you know, I've learned after 30 years because I keep on here, I, 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 you know, I started out in this business hearing, oh, this is different. The dot coms are different. This is different. Oh, they won't crash. It's different. Well, it didn't. They crashed. Oh, this is a banking cycle. Oh, it's different. We can use derivatives. We can sell, uh, you know, uh, mortgages as securities and overcharge for them. This is different. The government can print money. This is different, but it's okay. It's not going to affect the market. We're not going to have a correction. The chickens aren't going to come home to roost. You know, this is not going to ever be the case. It always ends up happening. And you know what? I've finally gotten comfortable believing that and not just going with the flow of the, the loudest voices out there because I've been there before. And, you know, early in my career, I didn't know what to listen to. So I just listened to what was the loudest. I figured, well, everybody can't be wrong. But guess what? History says that when everybody's on the same page, that's when they're the most wrong. And we're starting to get that right now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. All my peers in the business are getting you back in the market and saying, oh, we're not going to have a soft landing. Look at the Fed's going to lower interest rates. Look at that's the, the norm. That's the mainstream in the market philosophy and thinking. That scares me because usually it's the opposite that happens. You know, Templeton, you know, Templeton funds, he had a, a theories, you know, always buy when people aren't and always sell when people are buying. So, and, you know, he made a, a great fortune doing that. And then he died. And then Templeton funds kind of stinks since, since then. But that was kind of his claim to fame was just do the opposite. So I'd have contra funds that do pretty well. But that doesn't mean always go opposite. I mean, buy when people are buying and the fundamentals support it. But if the fundamentals will support it and people somehow come up with a cockamamie excuse to buy just to buy or just because this time it's different, that's the cry we hear every time right before something bad happens. So, you know, I don't want to be sitting there, you know, when something bad happens with my eyes closed, blindsided by a market that comes up and loses 20, 30 or 40 or heaven forbid, 50% of my clients risk assets. Thankfully, two thirds of our, on average, two thirds of our clients assets are not at risk. And if I'm wrong, 
they're going to make money because they're indexed to different markets. And so when the fundamentals of the market get better, the stock market goes up, we still make money on our, on most of our safe money. The other money that's in the market that we have in safe places are getting fixed interest rates, but they're not going down. So we really don't want to put more than a third or 30 or 40%. In some cases, some people have most of their money in the market, but uh, that's because they're aggressive investors and have tons of cash and you know tons of income. But for the majority of retirees, they need to turn some of their investments into income and they can't afford to ride the roller coaster of the market to get that income out. So we need to preserve most of it. So again, I'm only speaking to, on average of our clients, you know, maybe 30, maybe 40% of their assets that are market-based, that are that uh, liquid, speculative, hey, we can wait on this money, we don't need it to live on, that's just money we hope to make money. But again, if you still lie 20 or 30 or 40% of that big chunk of money, that still is a gut ache in retirement, knowing that you have to wait probably four or five or more years, like the last few recessions and market corrections, crashes, you know, to get back to even before you can feel comfortable about using that money and not locking in losses. Meanwhile, you've at least got some income and safe money handling the bills, but that still doesn't make you feel comfortable. Why, why go down that road? It's not like if we're making 5% and the market goes up uh, another 10 before we get back in, that we're really missing out on a lot when the market could have gone. If the Fed is right, it's a 50-50 chance. Are you willing to take a 50-50 swing? At, it'll go up or it'll go down. The 50-50 chance, that's what the Fed predicts. And typically they're on the side of, yeah, a little bit too, uh, maybe on the positive side. Typically, uh, again, when they say it's going to be a soft landing, more often than not, it's worse than uh, than they claim. So again, I'm not going to take a 50-50 uh, chance with your money in retirement. I'd be happy to take a 50-50 chance with your money if you're in your 30s. My son, the, the accountant, he's making good money. He's investing quite a bit every month. He says, dad, you're, you're out of the market still. Uh, uh, what about this last run-up? Looks really good. And I says, good for you. I says, keep buying. And then if it crashes, keep buying. I said, you're 30 something years old. You're going to be working for another 20 or 30. I said, you don't need to worry about it. Just keep on averaging into the market. You know, he's putting small chunks of money in every month and buying in over 20 or 30 years, I'm sure there's going to be gains. But if you've got hundreds of thousands or even a few million or tens of millions, and you've got a lot of exposure to the market, that's a big chunk to have all exposed to the market when it's money you have to take out, not put in. So again, it, it just kind of depends where you're in. I think most of the people that listen to this uh, program, since it's called Premier Retirement, are either about to retire, thinking about retirement, or already retired. So I hope I'm speaking to them and hope the oh, listeners yeah. understand that I'm speaking to them, not just a typical investor that's trying to grow their assets. I mean, if you're trying to grow your assets, man, you know, take advantage of everything in the market, just keeps on dollar cost averaging in, do it for the long haul, don't worry about it. But again, for people that want to protect, this is not a time to be risky. Jeff, about three minutes left in this segment. What was your case of the week this week? Well, you know, I had a couple of them very similar, and I've had this uh, recently as well. This is just a real quick and easy uh, scenario. I meet some people that have worked for the government or firemen or military that have really good income, but maybe they have a pension. Let's just say they're making uh, 40000 between them on a uh, social, on social Security. He's got a $75,000 a year pension, and uh, unfortunately, if he dies, it gets cut in half to thirty-seven. So now, now the surviving spouse only making $77,000, paying a few bucks in taxes because he or she is at a, a higher tax bracket on less money. And so yeah, maybe living on 5,000 net where, you know, they used to be living on about 10,000, you know, net or uh, closer to that, yeah, maybe eight to 10. So what do you do? Most people that have retirement plans where they get an income don't have a whole lot in savings. So the client that I'm thinking about right now has approximately $500,000 between IRAs and they're in their early 60s, just retired. So they've got at least 13 years before they even have to start taking money out. And if something happens and, you know, Mr. gets hit by a truck because the pension's on him, the wife ends up getting cut out. They don't want to risk their money because they know they've only got about half a million total. So we're going to put about 400000 of that into investment accounts that are guaranteed to grow 
to replace income at a rate of 8% per year, plus a nice bonus up front. Now, this is just an income account valuation. It's not actual guaranteed growth at 8%. Um, you can get some that are pretty consistent at growing 8%, but uh, I can't use the word guarantee because it's not. I can guarantee you won't lose any money, and I will guarantee that the company will pay you an income based on an 8% growth rate until you take income. So let's just say 10 years down the road, he gets hit by a truck, and all of a sudden, now you know she's living on roughly $80,000 instead of a 120. And, you know, has a lifestyle that kind of fits. How do you get up that extra, you know, $40,000 a year? Well, if you put $400,000 in right now, the guaranteed growth rate on that's going to be about eight or $900,000 at age 70, which she would be at in 10 years. If she takes income from that, the income is going to be about five and a half percent of that eight or 900,000. So she's going to get about 45 or $50,000 in guaranteed income for the rest of her life from that. So there's an income replacement strategy. And here's the other thing. Then they've got the $100,000 they can buy, you know, NVIDIA and crazy stocks and do whatever they want to. Oh, by the way, they still have, you know, about a hundred or 200,000 in, you know, CDs and stuff at the bank just for their emergency funds and liquid money to take trips and do some extra things just in case a remodel project comes up or something like that. Meantime, if this account does grow, say better than the 8% that it guarantees, the income grows, they can still take extra withdrawals out of that, even if income isn't needed in 10 years. When it comes time for the IRA to hit RMD time, required minimum distribution time, in which would be about 12 or 13 years from now, they're able to take the required minimum distributions, and that income will not drop at that point based on those distributions because it continues to grow in payout based on how old the person is and the fact that there's still that guaranteed growth rate of eight on income. So you can you can actually deplete the earnings and some of the principal on that, but the older you get, the higher the income goes, it's still going to replace at least half of that pension. So we solved that problem without them having to take any risk. They didn't have to rely on the stock market. They didn't have to rely on 5% CDs or guaranteed interest rates on government bonds hanging, hanging out at the 5% range or better, even long-term, short-term, or in-between term. So they got a long-term guarantee based on today's interest rates, because right now, the insurance companies that are offering these annuities that guarantee income are getting higher interest on your money. Let them invest it now for the long haul. They can ladder a bond portfolio for you and make you more money than you could probably do on your own. And they can guarantee income that you can't get anywhere else. Jeff, I hate to cut you off there. Once again, our number 520-780-9059. If you have questions or comments about our show, we'll take a quick break. Be right back with more of Premier Retirement here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. Thanks for joining us here on Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management in Tucson and also Mesa. You've got questions about our program. You've got questions about your individual situation. Maybe you've got comments about our show. We would love to hear from you at 520-780-9059. Maybe there's something that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about. Let us know about that. It's your show. We want to design it for you. 520-780-9059 is our telephone number. You can also use that number this weekend to call in and request your no-cost, no-obligation retirement review, a friendly conversation between you and Jeff to put you on a path towards retirement. I know you've got some questions or you wouldn't be listening to this show. Why not get them answered individually? Again, no-cost, no-obligation. 520-780-9059 is our number. You can also request your plan online. No-cost and no-obligation for that at Premret. P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Okay, Jeff, uh, all set for the questions of the week this week. Uh, we've chosen three randomly. 
We'll start off with Michael in Tucson. I'm 71 years old and currently have a 2.25% mortgage with 27 years remaining. I moved into my house 13 years ago and have been diligently saving to pay off my mortgage. That day has finally arrived. However, I find that I can buy an immediate single premium joint annuity that would fund the principal and interest on my mortgage for 66% of the cost it would be to retire my mortgage. This is my second marriage. I'm also the sole owner of the property. I've arranged to leave my wife, who's five years younger than I, a life tenancy should I predecease her, at which point the house would go to my two children. A joint annuity would guarantee her the ability to stay in the house and only pay taxes, insurance, and maintenance. Of course, no one can predict the future, but we currently have no plans or desire to move elsewhere. My question, should I sign that check for that annuity? Um, I think so. First of all, you've either done a lot of research, you have a good advisor. That's the type of stuff we would do. And we always look at the math to make the, you know, so many people just want to pay off that mortgage. But when you have a 2.25% interest rate and you can guarantee for the same 27 or 30 years remaining or for the rest of your life, a higher than 2.25% rate on your money, why would you not do that and use what we call arbitrage? I mean, we use arbitrage. That's the main thing that, you know, happens with uh, LERPs that I love, life insurance retirement plans. You know, sometimes uh, people will sell a property and want to reinvest the money or just put in a LERP and get tax-free money. You don't have to worry about rents and stuff. You know, you actually live off your death benefit. I mean, this is kind of the same concept. You're living off of basically your house money because they already gave you enough money to buy the house. You've saved up enough money to pay it off. And now you find out only two thirds of it is going to pay the mortgage off based on buying an annuity that's going to lock you in at somewhere around four and a half or 5%. That four and a half or 5% won't be here much longer. I think the uh, interest rates are going to remain flat. Insurance companies are already lowering their rates on those annuities. So I would sign the check yesterday and, you know, I'd say come here and shop the annuity. But if you've already got a good one, that'll pay for it. If you want to shop the annuity, we could do that for you. Make sure you're getting the best deal. But if you've just been the only one doing the shopping, you probably don't have as many options available to as, as an advisor does. If you have an advisor that shopped it for you, then good, go for it. He's doing you a good service. So again, if you can make four and a half percent on your money and pay two and a half percent and still have a third of your money, let's just say, I don't know what it is, but let's just say your house is, uh, your mortgage is still $300,000 left, but you can pay it off with a $200,000 annuity. That, that gives you an extra $100,000 for emergency purposes, final expenses, travel, or just speculative play in the market without any risk or any gut ache if the market doesn't go your way because you've already essentially paid off your house with that annuity. So you got the same peace of mind. You have extra liquidity, extra upside potential. Yeah, maybe a little extra gut ache potential depending on how you invest that money. But you know, this story is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why haven't you done this yet? I mean, I hope you didn't wait too long to hear it on the radio, but um, I don't know when you sent it in or asked them. Maybe you've already gone ahead and did it. But if, if anybody's out there thinking about that or thinking about paying off your house because you've got some money that's not doing anything, you know, keep Michael's example at the top of your mind because you can pay off that mortgage with about a third less money than if you just forked out the cash to do it right now if you have a really low interest rate, say under three. By the way, I have no idea how you got a 30-year mortgage at 2.25. Yeah, I don't I never, know. I never saw them that low unless you paid some points or yeah. had some help with a mortgage or a broker or had somebody in the family that owned the bank. I don't know. But you know, I think the best I saw was about 2% on a 15, but whatever, man. You're right. lucky. That is such a blessing. I would just love that blessing till you die. It's great that you did the life estate for your wife. The kids will get the property eventually and uh, everybody you love and care about is going to get taken care of. Michael, thanks so much for that question. Very good question and thank you for listening to us in Tucson. Again, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement with the Road Ahead. Okay, Jeff, next question is Sam and Reedy Ranch and Sam says, I'm 72 and have owned a small apartment complex rental property for the last 10 years. I paid $200,000 for it and it's now worth about $900,000. There are four units that rent for about $1,800 a month. I'd like to sell it, but I'm 
concerned about the tax that I would pay. Real estate has been pretty good to me, but I'm too old to manage it any longer. Is passive real estate an option or should I pay the tax and invest the rest? What do you think? Well, uh, a couple of questions I have. Is that 1800 a month? Is that uh, total net rents after expenses or is it 1800 a month per unit? If it's 1800 a month per unit, I can't imagine that that place is only valued at about 900 I'm, I'm going to say it's probably, <laughs> a, probably a gross rent on that 1800 is what he's counting. Maybe, but that, that's pretty dang good rent. I mean, the other thing you mentioned is, is passive real estate an option? Well, you just basically answered your own question. Passive real estate, what you have is not passive real estate because you're still maintaining the property, you're still chasing rents, you're still having to turn the property over and get renters. Passive real estate would be something more like maybe a DST, Delaware Statutory Trust, where mm-hmm. you know maybe you'd make about half that much money um, per year, but you wouldn't have to collect rents and fix anything. But again, you know, based on the rates that I'm seeing, you make about half that much. You're 72. If you're in great health, I mean, you could sell it, pay the taxes and have a LERP that would generate about uh, maybe 4,000 a month in payments. If you have a spouse that's younger and healthier than you, maybe uh, you could do a LERP and increase your income and maybe even make it a tax-free income account. I favor those. I favor paying the taxes at a capital gains rate, which is reasonably low compared to your ordinary income tax rates would be at a six or $700,000 income rate. You know, 20% is what your average rate would be in taxes on that. And it would be done rather than taking a chance that in the future, you end up selling it anyway, but your taxes are higher because maybe it's at ordinary income or you don't live a lot uh, long enough to have the step up in basis or even if the step up in basis is even available when you die so your kids can inherit that gain and not pay taxes. I mean, there's several different uh, routes you can go. You know, again, if you're healthy and the numbers work out, the tax-free route is the one I prefer. With LERPs, just pay the taxes, get out of it, and truly have a tax-free passive income that you don't have to worry about, think about, or even deal with. Real estate, you always have something to deal with and there could be some laws and some different things that you know change as we go forward that may affect it. Typically, the LERP-type things are a lot more uh, passive. But again, you have a lot of options there. But if renting the property and chasing rents, fixing toilets and getting calls in the middle of the night is not your forte anymore, then I think you should retire and be willing to take slightly less income on something more passive or just bite the bullet, pay the piper and just turn it into an income stream for the rest of your life. Again, that also depends on you know how your heirs are set up, if you want to make them rich when you die or if you want to just use every last dime. So there's different ways to solve the problem or the puzzle or to build the puzzle based on the final picture you want to see. And Sam, I don't blame you. I mean, chasing toilets, tenants, and trash at age 72, that gets old after a while, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners in that boat, so good luck to you. And thank you so much for listening to us in Rita Ranch. We'll also be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Next question here, Jeff Margaret listening to us in Vail, and Margaret says, I would be interested in having you talk on your show about using irrevocable trusts as the beneficiary for an IRA or a 401k. I know there's some issues with losing some of the tax benefits unless the trust is set up correctly, but I don't really know what to ask for or look for when I go and get a trust set up. What are some of the pros and cons of using a trust as a beneficiary? Well, on an IRA or 401k, if you're going to keep it in your possession until you die, I'm not sure there is a benefit of using an irrevocable trust, maybe a revocable trust, where you can leave assets to the trust and a trustee can make sure that they're passed out to who you want, how you want, when you want, and the, you know, based on the terms that you decide is best for your heirs, rather than let them just make their election to the 401k or IRA company and take it however they want to. I mean, if you've got some kids that are you know struggling with money or spend too fast, or you know maybe they have a propensity to get involved in drugs or other things that you know money can sometimes steer them to that you don't want them to, a trust can 
can limit maybe the income for certain purposes and a trustee can watch over that for them. So there's a benefit to a trust and having a trustee look after your money after you die. Uh, as far as the irrevocable trust, most people use irrevocable trusts. And I did talk to, about them actually, actually on last week's show, a client that has some farmland and they're moving it systematically over to an irrevocable trust to, to create income. And then they're going to end up selling that from the trust probably over time to a um, few nephews and who, who are in the family. And then the rest of the income from that trust is going to buy a big life insurance policy that will pay the heirs. Now, the reason they're using an irrevocable life insurance trust is because whatever they give away right now freezes the estate tax or uses up what's called unified credit or estate tax-free money to put in that trust. And once it's given to the trust, it no longer grows in your favor for estate taxes. In other words, you don't end up owing estate taxes on possibly millions of dollars of things that are in that uh, trust. But that only really works if you put it in advance and let it grow in the irrevocable trust where you get that uh, that benefit. Just putting it in irrevocable trust, I don't know, I think it probably ties it up too much, but I don't know your whole story and why maybe you're uh, mentioning irrevocable. Some people just confuse the words revocable and irrevocable. They sound alike. So maybe uh, you heard revocable and thought they said irrevocable when you talked about it with somebody. Not really sure, but you know, if you want to you know, discuss it a little bit further and tell me what your goals are, I can probably give you a better idea of why an irrevocable versus a revocable trust would work. And if you have assets, it would make more sense to go into an irrevocable trust than an IRA or 401k. Margaret, thanks so much for listening to us there in Vail. We, of course, will be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, this is not a question that anybody sent in to us, but at this time of the year, I'm sure that people are thinking about certainly the children and grandchildren in different ways that they can gift them. Many of the kids today certainly have everything that they need. So people are thinking about gifting with cash or gifting with money. What are some of the things that they should think about if they're going to be giving kids cash or money at this time of the year to save them from themselves? Well, you know, there, there's a lot of ways. If you're talking about sizable sums, like funding a 529 plan for college or, you know, funding a UGMA uniform gift to minors or UTMA or things like that, or if you just want to give them a bunch of cash, you know, I don't, I think if you're not worried about audits, depending on how much you gift, some people want to gift a ton of money, like say tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to the kids because they don't want it to be in their estate when they die. That's really kind of violating gift taxing rules. So if your intention is, hey, I would have bought this person a motorcycle worth $8,000. I'm just going to give them the cash instead. I don't think that's really anything that's a big deal. And I can't imagine an auditor going like, oh, you have to file a gift tax return because you just uh, reduced your $20 million estate. But you know, let's say you have 16 grandchildren and four kids. So each of them have four kids. Okay, let's say everybody has four kids. So there's uh, you know roughly 20 people that you could, in fact, give almost $15,000 per year to. So you times that by 20, there's $300,000 you could give away. And you know that would obviously be a gift tax issue. You would have to just give it away. You can uh, declare it on your income tax return as a gift and it doesn't count against you for giving it away. But if you go higher than that, you need to adjust your unified credits and actually use up some of your future estate tax free money or the, the estate tax limits. So, uh, you know, be careful about gifting and whether or not you're doing it on a big wide scale or if it's just, hey, I was going to buy this kid a, a used car, but, you know, I'm just going to give him the cash instead. Honestly, I probably shouldn't speak on the radio uh, that might offend the IRS, but I just don't think that's a, a, a taxable event that you need to report or get all too worked up over. But again, if you're trying to do this in a wide scale estate planning, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with doing your estate planning at Christmas time. Let's say you give all your kids $15,000 and they keep five of it and they disclaim $10,000 of it so that you can put it in an irrevocable life insurance trust so that when you die, they get a huge tax-free gift like of maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax-free money that doesn't estate tax you, doesn't income or estate tax the kids. I mean, that's that's how we utilize gifting in a 
you know, very positive way where it can not only benefit the kids to a certain degree, say, hey, I'll give you $5,000. You just have to disclaim the other 10. You know, that's a pretty good deal. That'll come out in their favor and in your favor. So you can do some of that estate tax planning preliminarily. You could do that for the next 20, 30 years. And, you know, if you live long enough to have great grandkids, you can continue to do it at a, at a bigger and bigger amount. So it depends on what your intention is. If it's just intention of making it easy to give a kid a gift so they can go pick their own one at the store, that's not an event that is a big deal. Right. But if you want to do some wholesale planning, Christmas is a great time to do that as well. Yeah. And we're gifting uh, certainly money for our 20 month old grandchild to go to college. His parents are using a 529 plan. I don't know if that's the best strategy to do that. I think you did have an alternative to that too, didn't you? Well, I do. I, I personally, I like the LERPs for a lot of things. I mean, you can take take uh, better control of that. But yeah, if you had, let's say just a thousand a year, you just want to put into kids a, a baby's account so that when they go to college, they'll have, you know, $50,000 that they can use toward tuition or books or whatever. I mean, that's a nice little Christmas gift as well. That's not really, that's not a tax ramification. There's no tax ramifications of that. The gift tax police aren't going to get all upset about that, even if you gave, you know, 10000 and 529 every year or more, because it's a four-year family and it's for those particular purposes. So the 529 does have a little bit of of guard against, you know, some of these estate tax red flags that some people are trying to get out of when they're dealing with bigger dollars. But if you want to, to do something, in my opinion, is even better, an irrevocable life insurance trust that is set up that to support your family for all their, you know, future education and dreams, you could actually gift that money outside of your estate. Again, this is for people with large estates into an irrevocable trust, still have it available that you can take, you know, loans against the future death benefits to send kids to college. And then it just, their college education might get adjusted for whatever their portion of the death benefit would be, which is still comes out tax-free in the end when you pass away or when your wife or whoever the insurance is on passes away. But yeah, I like the flexibility of LERPs, life insurance retirement plans. You can either own them yourself. If you're not going to be in an estate, ta- you don't think you're going to have a big enough estate to be in an estate tax problem where you have to kind of jump through a few hoops and make sure you have your bases covered and, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed and all that stuff. But, you know, most normal people aren't going to be paying estate taxes. They're not going to have tens and 20 millions of dollars if, you know, if they do a plan that benefits them. Most of them are going to be spending their own money and giving it away as they go. And it's not going to create that gift tax thing that you kind of alluded to earlier that I maybe alluded to is really for large estates. But as far as gifting goes, what's the purpose and what are your options? You know, one of the things that I've learned in 30 years is there's, you know, more more ways to skin a cat and, you know, than, than you probably know of. And we can maybe alert you to some of those other alternatives outside of, say, restrictive 521 plans that give you a lot more flexibility, especially in the gifting front. We're talking with Jeff Vogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. We've been answering listener questions. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer on the air, simply go to primret.com. Send it to us from there. If we do use it on the air, of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. And by the way, listening to the program right now, it's getting close to the end of the year. If you want to get 2024 off to a robust start, I would encourage you to get in and sit down with Jeff and ask your questions to put you on a prosperous path towards retirement. Again, that number to call 520 809059 for that conversation. No cost and no obligation for that. Also use that number if you've got questions or comments about our show, something you'd like us to talk about that we haven't talked about. You can get it to us by calling 520-780-9059. Shelly will take that information and pass it along to us. But don't neglect the opportunity here to get in and have that conversational analysis of your retirement plan. 520-780-9059 or online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. 
Jeff, at this time of the year, families begin to get together and always it's sort of like Christmas vacation. You know that movie? That's my favorite oh, yeah. National Lampoon movie with Chevy Chase and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cousin Eddie. And I don't know if it was the uncle or whatever it was with a cigar and the toupee and all that. But people get together and there's a lot of advice, whether you want it or not, that's sort of slung around the table there. But I want to talk about some terrible money takes that you might hear over the holidays. And I can just imagine, you know, the great uncle there talking about all oh, this stuff. Stock market is crashing. This stock market is crashing. It's sort of like a chicken little thing at holiday events. What do you make of that if somebody says the stock market is crashing? I mean, how do you rebut something like that? Or should you just sit and listen to it? What would you say? Well, I mean, me being in the business, I'd probably sit back and listen and say, well, you know, we have some ways. You could be right. The fact is nobody knows if the market, uh, you know, if the market's going to crash or go up, Uh, you know, depending on your situation, you you might take a different approach. But I think, uh, you know, stock tips by people that aren't in the business are kind of to be taken with a grain of salt. There always is chicken littles, especially times like this, where there's a lot of speculation and also a lot of worry that economic cycles might still play out. And I I think they still could, but I don't think the sky is falling right now and the sky won't fall if you positioned your assets right. The sky only falls if you've got everything out there. You got your head out on a chopping block and you know, you're not taking precautions as to what might or could happen to your assets. So again, you know, if you're set up right, then you can just like laugh at Uncle Eddie when he says this guy is falling, you should invest in this. And by the way, why should you take advice from somebody just in your family who might be um, have an occupation that doesn't look at the market every day, doesn't understand fundamentals, never really invested any of their own money, but they have, you know, maybe a 401k and somehow they think they're a guru. I wouldn't say that person's a guru. However, if the person comes over and he's an auditor for Deloitte or some big accounting firm and he's auditing, you know, firms and finding out that they're running out of cash and they're, uh, you know, that he's seeing the inside line on some fundamentals, you know, he's well connected to the actual health of the economy and state of big companies that that person might be auditing. You know, I kind of listen to that guy's, uh, you know, information because he's actually somebody that's got credible you know, knowledge about stuff that might be happening. It might be good to listen to it. Take it all into consideration, but also apply it to your own situation. Just because, um, you know, grandpa is scared that the sky is going to fall and he has very limited cash left, he should think the sky is falling because it does. He's ruined. He needs to go to a CD at 5% or whatever he can get that's safe. A person who's 30, if the sky falling, oh, you should be, yay, good, the sky's falling. I get to buy cheap, yay. I get to make more money on the stocks uh, that I get to buy really at a low price next year. I hope the market crashes like a, a rock. You know, some people are cheerleading a market crash. Some people are scared of a market crash and some people are positioned so their market crash isn't going to bug them one way or the other. And if we're wrong, we're still going to be right. I'd rather be right whether the market crashes or not. Again, that's where good planning comes in and also a good assessment of your own situation comes in is you have to know where you're at and what you should do. So just because somebody says the sky's falling, that's great. His opinion matters. It might matter differently to different people for different reasons at different times. So again, take it all with a grain of salt, you know, apply it to your own situation. If somebody scares you at a meeting, call your advisor, call us, get a second opinion from somebody that's actually in the industry and says, hey, is the sky really falling? Or if it does, what can I do to protect myself? Jeff, back in 1967, there was a movie that came out called The Graduate, in which Benjamin Braddock graduated from college and he was given the advice, one word, plastics. All right. Well, today Mm -hmm. is not 1967. It's 2023. That one word now could be two words at the holiday party. If someone says, let me give you some advice, son, artificial intelligence. What would you Mm -hmm. say about that? 
hey, it's, you know, it's kind of the next big thing, but be cautious about it. You know, as many winners, there's going to be losers. There are certain people that definitely have a head start and uh, certain companies that definitely have a start in the AI space. We've also got to assess what the AI space can actually generate if it's going to be regulated out of existence because it takes over too much or it's uh, too intrusive or breaks too many privacy laws. You know, that could be, uh, you know, put some dampeners on it. The thing is, is AI is still speculative. Uh, You know, plastics might have been speculative, chips, speculative. Now they're the mainstream, you know, that everything starts as speculative and some things become winners and some things become losers. I think AI is here to stay to at least a certain degree. I mean, we've been using it already. I mean, my goodness, they've been, uh, you know, Facebook and everybody else has been tracking your your movements, your digital footprint basically tells them what kind of ads to pop up to your phone every time you turn it on, Instagram and all that kind of stuff does the same stuff. So, I mean, there's all, all kinds of, uh, you know, things that, uh, that could happen. The bottom line is, uh, you know, be smart, you know, I think it's a great class of asset, an asset class to diversify into. I believe that just based on this recent run-up on the AI hype, that they're a little overvalued right now. The big uh, players in the AI space are probably a little overvalued. I think you're right. I think uh, AI is a great thing to watch. I think it's a great thing to buy into when the prices are a little bit more favorable. And I think more along the lines of probably an ETF or mutual funds that concentrate on it where insiders, not insider trading, but insiders as people in the industry who have a better ability to pick and choose the companies that either have proprietary technologies or uh, contracts that are already pending with companies for purchases, you know, years out on end, you know, those kind of things might be uh, easier ascertained by somebody who manages portfolios than you and me uh, trying to fly around and look under the covers or peel the onion back to find out what's going on. So I think stock picking in the AI space is going to be very difficult. I think the AI space as a sector is certainly something that uh, isn't going to be, you're not going to be able to avoid it one way or the other. So so that probably is the next big thing. You know, a lot of people, because of the economy situation, are talking about gold and silver being the next big thing. Well, I don't know. Gold and silver has never really been a big thing other than, you know, based on the hype and so far over the years. I remember, you know, gold was at, what, almost $1,000 an ounce back in, uh, I think it was 79 or 80, something, something in that range. I mean, that's 40 plus years ago, and it's basically doubled in 40 years. That means its average rate of return, that prior high 40 years ago to this high, has only been 2% rate of return. So, Again, you can you can get caught off guard just with hype and over, I guess, overhype. Just too much cheerleading will sometimes help us or guide us to decisions that we might regret. So again, all in the context of a complete portfolio, I think AI will always be and probably should be a piece of it in some way or another. I think uh, gold and silver may be a hedge to a small degree in some way or another. Everything that comes up as a hype is at least worth giving ear to and looking at the options, but I wouldn't go all in. Um, crypto, shoot, crypto's gone up, what, doubled in the last uh, couple months just because of a war breaks out in Israel and it's kind of weird. I mean, what is that? Is, uh, are arms traded on with crypto maybe? I mean, crypto is really invented for nefarious activities. Is all the money that we're giving away to uh, Ukraine going into crypto so it can be handed back in crypto to uh, you know, the likes of the Biden family or other people that are orchestrating these uh, big, I I don't mean to sound cynical or get off case, but everything that's hyped will probably have its day. But is there fundamental supporting it for the long term? I don't know. It depends if you're a day trader, a speculator, a hype artist, or if you just want good, solid, long-term growth based on predictability and sanity. Terrible money mistakes that you might hear over the holidays. Get ready for some really bad money conversations and remember, do your own research. 
Well, Jeff, we're just about out of time for this week, but I want to remind people 520-780-9059 is the number to call if you want to get in and sit down with Jeff. 520-780-9059. Thank you for your time, Jeff. I want to thank the fine people here in the greater Tucson area for listening to us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll talk to you next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered. 